you've got to wake up and say, hey, I have got an amazing life. And, I mean, today I'm sitting in my, I guess, home office looking at the um, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge thinking I never, ever thought I could have this kind of lifestyle. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Chris Gray, originally a London career who came to Australia on a backpacking holiday that would change his life forever. You'll learn about Gray's first step into property, how he built a $15 million property portfolio and how he pulled off retiring at 31 years old. Retiring from his career at 31, Chris Gray has a lifestyle deviating from the norm. He shares that while he's able to live comfortably, he does have a different perspective to most. I'm basically an accountant turned uh, property investor and I basically started investing at 21 or 22 rather and uh, semi-retired out of Deloitte, the accounting firm at 31. I then basically started teaching people what I'd done because everyone said, oh, how come you managed to retire early? And then after a few years of that, then people said, look, I don't want to learn how to do it. Can you just buy me whatever you'd buy for yourself? So probably about almost 10 years ago now, I set up a buyer's agency. And so uh, we buy maybe 50 or 100 uh, properties for uh, for clients. And then I spent a lot of my time doing media on TV and radio and magazines. I guess just teaching everyday Australians through the professionals uh, how to invest in property and how to have more of a money mindset. So, how does Gray spend his time on any given day? It changes day by day and, and that's basically how I wanted my life. So, um, I mean, I've got a reasonably um, sizable company but we don't have any offices. Uh, technically, we don't have any staff, everyone's self-employed and that's because I didn't want to run a business and I didn't want to have to turn up to an office. So, ideally, I want every day to be different. I spend a lot of my time more networking and learning. So, I'm part of various entrepreneurs groups. Um, I travel overseas. Um, about a week a month, so about 10 or 15 trips a year. So that's about a week of the month. Mondays, I'm always um, kind of recovering and doing Sky News. And then the other days, quite often it could be in boats, um, supercars, uh, choppers, um, having meetings. I just love meeting people and learning stuff. And uh, part of my time speaking to clients as well and putting deals together. But yeah, pretty much every day is completely different. Gray leads the kind of life most of us dream of having and it doesn't stop at supercars and boats. Back in about 2008, I climbed uh, Kilimanjaro and it was $50,000 each, which obviously is a lot of money. It was a, mainly a donation to charity. But the kind of people that would go to that are people that can afford to either raise $50,000 or write a check for $50,000. So again, it's, a lot of the time people say that the average or your wealth will be the average of 10 people that are closest to you that you hang around. And so that's what I do is I hang around entrepreneurs and wealthy people and they hang around climbing up mountains and in supercars and car days and boat days and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's where my target audience is, which, wow. is uh, which is good fun. Which is fantastic. So, they're also your clients and also close friends as well. Would that be true to say? Yeah. So, typically, I'm lucky enough now I only work with people I want to work with. So, if I don't like people, then I won't work with them. And so... It, Typically, there's not that much difference between the friend and the client. 
um, because if I'm going to work together, then I need to get on with them and I need to like them. And I guess a lot of people become friends to start with and then they learn what I do and then they say, well, my expertise is in shares or is in business or something else. So can you help me with a property portfolio? And then obviously I help them as a friend and as a client as well. Gray shares with us the main reason for his success. I guess the overall overall riding kind of thing about me is more the lifestyle. So I've always stood up and pretty well known for having the lifestyle um, of playing with all these toys and not having to work for a living. And I guess that's where I've got a lot of followers because then people aspire, or some people aspire to have that kind of lifestyle as well. But the basis of everything is I make all my money from property. So even though I've got a business, the majority of my money I actually make from uh, by owning my own properties and the properties increasing. And I guess I'm also known as being a bit of a contrarian. So, so the, my philosophy on money is complete opposite to most other people. So to give you some examples, so I've got, say, 14 properties roughly worth about $15 million, mainly in Sydney and some over in the UK, but I, don't, I still don't own my own home. I've got a wife, I've got two kids at um, seven and eight that are at school, so we've got a, a traditional kind of um, family um, family unit, but we don't aspire to own our own home, and if we did own our own home, then we'd never pay a cent off it. Um, again, I've, I've mentioned that I've got a business, but I've got no staff, I've got no office, and so having that contrarian mindset is all part of this wealth creation thing, that if you want supersonic cars and boats and choppers and big houses and the rest of it, Sure, you can just go and buy them, but there's a lot cleverer ways of doing it, kind of like renting or syndicated ownership or buying second-hand cars rather than brand new. And I guess it all comes together, but the ultimate basis is, is yeah, the wealth creation is through property. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's um, what, I guess, Tim Ferriss, and you've heard of Tim Ferriss, I, I presume? It, it sounds like it's the, the new rich or the lifestyle where you can have all of these great things and not necessarily have to own it because that doesn't uh, hold you down. And it, you can still live a fantastic lifestyle, which is what you're currently doing. Exactly. So, so when Tim wrote the book, the uh, the Four Hour Work Week, about a year before, I'd actually written a book called How to Turn Your Weekdays into Weekends. So, I how to work two days a week and have five days off versus the other way around. He had a, a much better title and a much better book, and he sold <laughs> billions of copies. So, but I guess the mindset's pretty much the same. And so, again, going through his book. I guess I've done a lot of those things in terms of outsourcing, have virtual assistants or personal assistants, and basically just trying to find a clever way of doing stuff rather than doing things traditionally, almost like kind of Robert Kiyosaki days of Rich Dad Poor Dad, is the old traditional way of go to school, get a good job, go to university, all that kind of stuff. It's it's not the way we do things these days. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way, but there are sometimes some smarter ways of doing stuff. Gray delved into his past and we learn about his personal journey into becoming a successful investor. I grew, grew up back in uh, North London and I finished school at, uh, at 18, got a job as a courier in London. I, I just loved driving so even though I didn't earn any money, I think I actually was more in debt after I finished working than I was when I started. But I guess how I got into property was I came to Australia backpacking for three or four months, had absolutely no money. Uh, lived in the backpackers in Manly Beach in uh, in Sydney, but even though I had no money and I worked seven days a week, you could still go down to the beach for five or six hours, do a day's work, and then still go out drinking. And um, it's just an amazing lifestyle. So even if you had no money, you'd have an amazing lifestyle in Australia. 
And I went back to the UK. My mum actually gave me a curfew and she said, you've got to be back by uh, by midnight. And I said, mum, look, I've travelled all the way around the world. I'm Surely I can get back from the local pub. But she said, no, it's my house, my rules, and you've got to be back by midnight. And that was the catalyst because I'd seen what it was like to, to leave home and to be in better places. That that was my catalyst to push me into property. Whereas I guess a lot of my friends hadn't had that backpacking experience and hadn't seen what it was like to, to have your own apartment or, or to live outside from home. And so um, I guess they didn't have the same catalyst that I did. So what was his home life before he moved to Australia? My dad was a heart physician. My mum was a nurse. And so they were very much in, into the church and the community. And so they were very non-materialistic. They're all, obviously, they came from a, a pretty wealthy family. Um, because my dad was a doctor or a high-income family, but they never had any interest in those material kind of things. I mean, they gave us a good head start with property, so we had a, a property deposit. So at 22, I earned 10,000 pounds, so about 20, 25,000 Aussie. Mm. And I had a deposit, I think, of about 10 or 15, I think maybe 10,000 pounds in those days. And Basically, I, I just worked the numbers. So I looked at what I could afford, which is normally three times your income. So I could afford a thirty or forty thousand um, pound place, which even in those days was a pretty run-down, crappy one-bedroom unit. Um, I then started looking at three-bedroom houses in the best part of town, even though I couldn't afford them, and I fell in love with those kind of things. And I basically set myself a goal and said, right, I want this property, and it was one for a hundred thousand pounds. And basically, long story short, what I worked out is, first of all, I could buy that for 80000 because the guy was pretty keen to sell and I wasn't involved in the chain. So as a first home buyer, kind of, it was quite attractive because um, you, you could basically sell it on the property within uh, five or six weeks, so it's nice and clean. And I basically went to the bank and through my dad's guarantee, I said, look, if I buy a 30 or 40 group, thousand pound place i'm going to be mortgaged for life i'm going to have no money i can't afford to go out whereas if i can afford to get a seven times mortgage and get this three-bedroom house i can rent two rooms out to two mates and in those days the rents were around 10 or 12 percent that would actually pay the whole of my mortgage off so i could actually live for free fantastic so i then took it to my dad as more of a business case to say look dad I need some help if you can. I'm not after your money. I just need to try and get a guarantee for the bank because a three-bedroom house is going to be free, whereas a one-bedroom unit is going to cost me a fortune. And I just had this kind of mentality. So my school base is very much, I look at normal problems. I translate it into basic numbers, and the basic numbers tell me a different story to what the emotional choice that our parents and our grandparents and society tell us what to do. Gray goes on to explain further the strategy which allows him to live a free lifestyle. What I worked out then is is if you buy, say, like Monopoly, all of those green houses, call those million-dollar Bondi two-bedroom units with parking, lots of people want those, so the rent returns are pretty high. So normally it's around 4 or 5%. But then I worked out that 5 or $10 million homes, not many people can afford to rent them because anyone that can afford to rent them would always buy because there's a perception that only poor people rent. And so what I worked out about 10 years ago is whatever I could afford to buy, I could rent somewhere three or four times more expensive for the same kind of money. And so that's why I don't rent my own home these days because I can rent something very expensive that's only got a yield of 1% or 2%, but then all of my properties I rent out and get a 4 or 5%. 
Great strategy is smart and it clearly works but how did he get to this point from being in the UK and what did the first years of his investments career look like? So I bought my first at 22. I think the next one I bought was about a year later, so it was around 23, 24. Then at 27, I qualified as an accountant and that got me residency for Australia. So I basically jumped on the next boat and came to Australia and emigrated at uh, 27. So now 45 to almost 20 years ago. Wow. So there was a bit of a break between, so at least a five-year break before you actually came to Australia there. So you held on to those two properties when you're over in the UK? Yes, I've still got those and um, basically I used the equity in one of those to uh, to buy a Porsche and again the the thought process with that was was that I couldn't afford a Porsche on a 30-year loan but, oh sorry, on a a three-year car loan but I could afford a second-hand Porsche on a 30-year mortgage by effectively pulling equity out and using the equity to buy the Porsche. And then I sold the Porsche because it still held its value because it was second-hand. And I used that as my traveling money and and spent seven or eight months traveling to Australia by land. Wow, I love your your contrarian theory uh, thinking. It's it's it really changes people's mindsets. It's even changing my mindset right now. I'm going to be picking your brain very soon to get a little bit more information about that as well. Uh, so yeah, so with, yeah, so with the Porsche thing, then a lot of people said, yeah, but you're using debt to finance luxury goods that are depreciating assets, which is true. But if my property has gone from eighty to a hundred thousand pounds, and I've made twenty thousand. A lot of people would sell that and then go and buy a twenty thousand pound car, and they think they've made twenty grand and that's good, but then they haven't got an asset. Whereas by me accessing, and I think I borrowed ten or fifteen thousand pounds, then I still kept that hundred grand property, which then grew to one hundred and ten and one hundred and twenty. So I'm still making that. So even if I sold it at any time, at least I'd still have the equity there. So I wasn't kind of chewing up too much equity. But the main thing was I still kept the appreciating asset and that was going up by more than the depreciating asset or the car was actually going down. So therefore, your asset was making more money than your depreciation liability, which obviously makes more sense because even if you sold your your Porsche that was holding a value, you still get money back anyway and the cost or the coverage of your asset would be able to pay that off eventually. Exactly. And so I think this is a really strong point to make is I'm very much a believer in rewarding yourself as you go. Mm. So I got into massive debt at 22 and at 24. And I think at 24, when I bought the second property, I then refinanced and then bought the uh, bought the Porsche. And it's to reward yourself. So, so sure, I hadn't worked physically hard, but I worked mentally hard to suddenly have two assets that were worth maybe £200,000 in the UK then um, at 24. And why not then take the money off the table at the same time as well? Yeah. So don't, don't save it all up. Yeah. Don't squander it all. But there's a bit of a balance in between. So Gray came to Australia when he was just 27 with the philosophy that you should work hard but not at the cost of missing out on what life has to offer. Yeah, so I actually um, started working for a dot-com uh, in 2000 and um, was basically working probably 80 hours a week. And... Even though I enjoyed it with young people, we went from like 10 people to about 130 within a few months. Wow. Um, I was working six days a week and then sleeping on the seventh. And I made some money through the dot-com, but basically after it and after the um, the GFC came about and obviously the shares all collapsed, I then said, well, I don't care how much money I earn. I'm not enjoying the Australian uh, 
kind of weekends and the lifestyle and the rest of it. And that's when I said, well, to me, life isn't purely about money and I want to live the life. And this is what I came to Australia for. And so that's when I left and then I started uh, actually into recruitment and uh, got into uh, Deloitte through recruitment, kind of interviewing CFOs. But that's when I really learned that, um, yeah, you've got to live the life. And I met so many unhappy people that hated their jobs uh, through kind of recruitment and interviewing people that that's when I really learned then there's, there's more to life than just working in money. For his book, Gray interviewed a massive number of people and discovered that many of them had a lot of income but were very time poor. This was one of the things which inspired him to seek financial freedom. So basically in my recruitment role, then I used to have to try and find the candidates, so I, the financial controllers and the finance directors to put into some of Deloitte's clients as a, as a recruitment firm. And so I basically had to interview 10 people a week, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't too uh, kind of uh, time performing on me. Mm. But over two years, then that's kind of 100 weeks, so that's about 1,000 people that I interviewed. And most of these guys could do their jobs. They were, they were very successful people. So more the interview process was more getting to know about them personally. And quite often we talk about money and houses and all the rest of it because I had a personal interest around that. And, and this is the thing that I learned was a lot of the people I met that were suddenly in their 40s, 50s and 60s, they were struggling to get contracting jobs because they were competing against a 30-year-old backpacker from the UK or Ireland that was maybe getting 30 or 40 bucks an hour. And they were arguing, look, I'm a CFO, I used to be on two, three, four hundred thousand, and maybe one or two hundred bucks an hour. And so I'm a bargain to, to a firm that wants to hire these people. And I learned it was a very ageist uh, kind of workplace in Australia, and, and probably the same in the UK, in that a lot of these companies, they, they would rather get the fresh blood in at 30 or 40 bucks an hour, even if someone with 40 years experience would do the same job and maybe do it better because they wanted to mould the young people and train them, whereas someone that's done something for 40 years is maybe more set in their ways. And so I suddenly thought like an accounting job is a job for life, but I suddenly turned turned out and realised it wasn't. And so suddenly a lot of these people, they had their big expensive homes in Mosman, they had kids at private school, they might have a, a, a wife kind of out shopping or at the gym all day, expensive cars, overseas holidays. And suddenly these guys were battling to get 30 or 40 bucks an hour at the same time. So that's when, over that period of two years, I realized that I definitely didn't want a career. And at the same time, I think I was earning about $80,000 to $60,000 after tax. But the property market was really booming in, this was about 2003, 2004. Mm. So I had six six properties all rising by 100,000 a year for a couple of years. So I was making 600 grand a year from property investing, doing nothing and paying no tax on it, and earning 60 grand from Deloitte. <laughs> and this is where the whole puzzle kind of came together. If I can earn 600 grand for doing nothing versus 60 grand for, for working a 40-hour week, then I'd rather take the 600 grand. Of course, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> I think any person yeah. in the right mind would I, definitely. I'm not a great accountant, <laughs> but I was a good enough accountant to work that one out. <laughs> Yes, I think that was a no-brainer for, for most people anyway. It's funny how many people still continue to do a full-time job not realizing that property can do that. But until you get into that position, then you can actually see how that is able to be, um, I guess, 
you can actually take that on on board to be able to invest into yeah. property. So look, most people, um, they go to school, they concentrate on university, get on the career ladder, and that's all they follow. I just did things differently because I thought people create money, i.e. from wages, and then get into wealth creation to try and then build build wealth. So why not? I kind of did it in reverse, and I thought, why not concentrate on building wealth straight away? And so in Deloitte, they found it really hard to motivate me because I wasn't motivated by money like most other people or bonuses because I was making so much money from property. If they paid me a five or 10 grand bonus, it didn't make any difference. Mm. And so, so this is the problem is especially the people that are really up at the top end of the ladder, they just do not have any time whatsoever to concentrate on personal finance. So sure, they've got a paid off home. Sure, they've got money in the bank and money in super, but it's nothing compared to what they could have uh, if they actually just leveraged it, even 50% or something. Uh, and so that's why one of the chapters in my book is it's it's called It's Not About What You Earn, It's What You Do With Your Money That Counts. Mm-hmm. Because I saw some really young, almost PAs that had four or five properties and they had more than the partners that were earning maybe half a million, a million bucks because the PA knew that she was going to be poor because she maybe only earned 50 or 60 grand. And so she knew she had to work hard at a personal wealth. Whereas someone on a high income, they automatically assume they're going to be wealthy. And so they actually get very lazy on their wealth creation. And so, again, this is just learnings I'm just picking up from the people around me. Having already secured two properties in his portfolio from the UK, Gray explains how he fell into the Australian property market. So I basically bought two in the UK at 22 and 24. And then, and that was basically self-taught. So I don't know if Robert Kiyosaki was even around in those days, but certainly there was no books or magazines or TV programs. And I didn't necessarily want to be a property investor. The second one was a bit of an accident, really. Um, and so I, I guess it was really just when I came to Australia at 27, then I needed to buy a property to live in because that was always the, the done thing. Um, and so I guess I then just started building up from there. And again, it just kind of happened by chance in a way. So I wasn't aspiring to be a big property investor, but I guess I, I bought the first one in 99 uh, for 360 in Coogee. Everyone said, oh, it's all going to collapse after the Olympics. You're absolutely mad. I mean, now that property's worth 1.1 or 1.2 or something. And then for some reason, I was going to buy another one in Tamarama. And I think maybe I I just started sort of accumulating stuff and rather than sell it, just refinance and then buy the next one. So again, I, I don't think it really hit me till about 30 or 31 till I actually kind of gave up work. And that's all, maybe a year before I gave up work. And um, I just happened to be doing something and it just kind of fell into place in a way. So it wasn't necessarily a really defined goal that, that I've set in my um in my 20s and 30s. Wow, okay. It's, I love that story because you stumbled into it. And when you said you're buying your first home, was that when, when you started your family or was that just uh, when you're, because you just needed to live in a place? Yeah, no, I just needed somewhere to live. So um, I didn't start a family until I was probably about 35 or something like that. And so I'd actually already given up work by then and um, had all my properties and been retired for a few years. And I think I'd just started the education business when then I met my current wife. Gray has accumulated 14 properties worth a whopping $15 million over the years. 
At what point in his life did he really begin to focus on the industry which would earn his success in financial freedom? I suddenly, I think I came across Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Poor Dad thing, which was a massive eye-opener and I actually think I got it from someone introduced me to Amway or uh, Network 21, I think they used to call it. So again, a business that everyone thinks is shocking because it's got a bad reputation and it's uh, multi-level marketing. But the, the great thing about those kind of companies is the education that they, they give people. Mm. And I think when I was still at Deloitte, then I went on a course and um, the course was about $15,000. And I've met, I met some guys, I think it was through, first of all, it was an RSL in Kuji, I think. And it was uh, one company. And then through those same people, six months later, I found this other business. And I had all these blocks that I couldn't basically borrow more money from the bank. The bank had said, no, you can't service anymore. I didn't really have any more capital. And so I knew I'd made a lot of money from property, but I didn't know how to continue it. So I basically went on this course and I didn't even have the money for the course. I had to put it on a credit card. And all of my colleagues at Deloitte said, you're absolutely mad. And I said, well, look, Deloitte's never going to pay for me to go on a course to retire early. <laughs> and um, I said, I'll, I'll go and do it. And look, I'm sure even if I implement one thing, then it's, it's worth the money. And the, I just got all the logic from this. And there's good courses and there's bad courses, but I just concentrated on all the things that I liked about it and all the other stuff I didn't worry about. But I guess what was different between me and a lot of the other people in the audience is I, I was determined to go and put it into practice. I spent a lot of money on the course and I wanted to put it into practice. And basically it taught me that there is no such thing as there is no such thing as no. So when you come across a barrier that a bank says, no, we're not going to lend you any money, you go to another bank, you go to 10 banks or 100 banks or, or however many you need, or you go to solicitor's funds or you do whatever. And it, that basically taught me the mentality of uh, not working for the rest of my life to ba basically go out and think of this as a business rather than just a part-time hobby. And I just put a lot of work into it and hired the best people I could and so within a year, I gave up work and I bought a 355 Ferrari, which was my dream uh, dream car. And so, and effectively, I gave up work at 31. So a lot of people say that 15000 you spent on the course was a lot of money. And I said, yes, it is. But in hindsight, that's worth millions and millions of dollars. Yes. And because effectively, even though technically I work and sometimes I work hard and sometimes I don't, but to have basically from my 30s to my 60s or 70s, to not have to do a proper job again ever, ideally, touch wood, then that is worth even tens of millions of dollars. I don't think you can even put a dollar value on that, to be honest. Exactly. Because the lifestyle I've got is is pretty amazing. Like, um, sure, I don't have a, a fly in my own private jet and I don't have a 50 or $100 million home, but uh, I'm pretty happy with what I've got. And just having that freedom of doing different things, different days, and choosing who I want to spend my time with, to me, that's worth, yeah, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm, so I'm a, a massive advocate of, of learning. And a lot of it doesn't need to be expensive. You don't have to go on these expensive courses. But like, there's plenty of books that um, have got it, the magazines, the TV shows. I don't think there's any excuse these days for not having enough knowledge and for getting out there, like, just like these podcasts and things like that then there's so many people giving information and a lot, not all the information's good and there are some uh, some shady people in the industry but um, yeah, there's, there's no reason you can't build good quality knowledge. 
Gray has a focused attitude and mindset when it comes to investing but the mistakes he made in the past are what have enabled him to learn and grow into a success. My biggest issue that I've had with investing is I invest too much. So for most people, they don't get off their backside and do anything. I've always been uh, too far the other way. So in the UK, you could get into debt at 18. I got into debt at 17 and um, my debt got, just got bigger and bigger. And uh, again, taking on that first mortgage of seven times your income versus three times. So my mortgage repayments were more than my wages before tax, let alone after tax. So I've always kind of got used to debt from an early age. But look, in probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, I was probably almost in negative equity because they, I, was, I was highly geared, maybe 90 or 100% geared anyway, and then the market kind of fell off a bit. And so it's it's um, kind of 50-50 whether my properties would have actually um, paid off my debt. But again, going to see the accountants and getting all the good advice that I got, and from people like Angus Rain from Rain and Horn, he was a very, very generous guy that um, gave me a lot of his time to help me. And, and a lot of these guys said, look, Chris, you've got to hang on to your portfolio. If you sell your portfolio, you're going to end up with no assets and you'll still have some debt and you'll never be able to repay that debt. Whereas whether you beg, borrow or steal, or obviously maybe not steal, but um, get five jobs and just hang on, because I think at the time I had about three and a half million in property, and all you need is to get 10% growth and you suddenly make $350,000 and suddenly all your problems are over. And so I think in the, the age from probably 30 to 40, there was various different times when I'd really pushed the limit massively. I was down to probably my last 10 or or $100 or something like that. And I was almost wishing on heart attacks to claim on my insurance and hopefully survive the heart attacks to then get the payout <laughs> to try and get myself out of a rut. And it, it was very, very tough. So at times I've had years of sleepless nights. So this is the, the downside. Wow. So it, there, it's not all positive and a lot of the speakers and people say, oh, it's so easy and it feels easy in hindsight. But at the times, and it, it's all my own doing and, and I did it knowingly and I was willing to take those risks to then have the upside on the uh, on when the market did move, but look, there was some a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of stress and stuff like that because I was pushing the limits um, beyond what most other people would do. And and that's an inspiring story because if you which you, you did as long as you hung on to it, the market does change. It's just a matter of time and whether or not you can actually ride out the waves or ride out the downtimes, which is what you did. Even now, then I don't know if I've kind of completely got there. I've Hopefully, another few years, I'm trying to build my buffer and reduce my LVRs so I may be only 50% geared. Um, and I'm, I'm not doing that by paying off debt. I'm waiting for the market to rise and rather than pull the equity out and, and reinvest it, I'm just trying to hold on to it. So, look, I might be bankrupt tomorrow or in five or ten years' time. Who knows? But what I always say is, is if I do get into trouble, it'll be through mainly part of it the market, but part of it my own own doing and so I pushed the limits I pushed the limits on my lifestyle and I live larger than a lot of people and I drive Lamborghinis and expensive boats and travel the world and so I could be more conservative I could save more money and, and be much much safer and maybe not risk that as much but at the same time I'm very much a person that's really active and wants to get out there and I want to live my life in case I die tomorrow and as much as I don't want to risk losing everything and I don't think I, I will, 
never say never. We we never knew about the GFC when that came around. I think the kind of property that I invest in is really low risk or the least risk property you can buy because it's all blue chip, medium price property. But look, you never know. And I, I take massive insurance policies out for my health. So if I'm ever sick, then I'm almost set for life. But you never know what's around the corner. And so uh, I'm quite prepared to say, look, I don't know everything. And if sometimes it does go wrong, well, look, maybe I should have been slightly more conservative. Yes and no. I, I have to say, though, if, if you didn't live your life to where you are now, you wouldn't be able to have, live life to the max. And, and I think you're doing what you're doing that suits your lifestyle and suits what you want as well. You know, I think a lot of people will regret if they don't do anything. They look back and go, man, I, I could have done that, but you know, why didn't I? But you're doing what you want to do. So I think that's, that's a huge... I think that is very true because, I mean, most people on the deathbed, the, the old cliche is, is, yeah, no one's ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office and if only I'd done this and done that. And I'd like to think that, look, if I did die tomorrow, then I think all the things on my bucket list, if I think of something to do, I just go and do it. So I don't really have a bucket list of things that I haven't done that I really want to do. If, uh, if I come up with the idea, then quite often it's implemented and, and done straight away. Coming up after the break, we talk about Chris Gray's mindset and philosophies. Not repaying a loan and becoming a bankrupt or something isn't an option. You've got to repay all your loans. And so you will kind of beg, borrow, steal or have five or ten jobs to be able to do that. We learn about strategy which is gaining popularity which allows those with less money to get onto the ladder faster. But in essence, yeah, they might split it into 10,000 shares of, of that million dollar property. And so effectively you can then, with your $5,000 or $10,000, is then buy a part of that. Great, shares his advice for those who are just starting out. I think a typical person, they don't tell anyone what they earn for a living. They don't tell them what they've got in their bank and, and what their strategy is. And so I think it's very hard to become an expert at something if you don't talk about it. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Welcome back. Chris Gray and I move on to discussing his proudest moments. Owning that first property. I remember coming down the stairs and I had had a uh, nothing in the house whatsoever because I had no money, no furniture, but I had a 100-pound um, IKEA futon mattress and a case of warm beers. And in the UK, we, we used to drink warm beers, so you didn't even need the fridge. Just uh, room temperature beers was, was fine. But that was one of my proudest moments. Um, I think refinancing the Porsche again was another massive one. And I didn't, I didn't know what I'd done. I didn't know about refinancing. And I did a joint venture with my dad. I, I didn't know what joint ventures was, but I did one. I just do logical things, and then I've learned what they're kind of called afterwards. Um, I think the day I retired from work at Deloitte, and I sent an email to everyone saying, I'm retiring, I'm no longer going to be on this email, is, again, a very, very proud moment. Um, but as, mu as much as getting on TV and, and doing the TV things, um, but each year just celebrating my successes and just think, Look, I'm still on the journey. I haven't got to the top of the mountain. Um, I think there's, there's still a, a tiny bit of a way to go. But I just think there's, there's lots of little wins. And, and like we said at the start, you've got to reward yourself and you've got to have these wins. And you've got to wake up and say, hey, I have got an amazing life. And I mean, today I'm sitting in my 
I guess, home office looking at the um, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, thinking, I never ever thought I could have this kind of lifestyle if I look back 20 or 30 years into my kind of late teens and early 20s. I'd have no dream and a purple Lamborghini downstairs and a boat on the harbour and all these kind of things. It just sits there and it's just normal stuff now, which is, um, yeah, you've still got to pinch yourself. Gray mentioned that he still has a little way to go. So, when will he feel he has reached the top of the mountain? I guess my next goal is really just having enough of a buffer. So, I'm probably about 60% geared on my portfolio um, and I guess I, I really wanted to get down to about 50 to then have 30% of buffer ideally in cash so that no matter what happened with interest rates rising or if I completely stopped work and didn't have any income coming in, then I kind of wanted enough cash for maybe 10 or 15 years that I didn't have to worry about no, no matter what. But look, I mean, if, if interest rates did suddenly double to 10 or 12%, then my cash flow position would be massively changed. Um, I think I'd still be still be fine because in my book, I still work on interest rates of 7, 8 and 9%. So I do kind of stress test myself, but I'd just rather have a lot more excess buffer, excess cash just to counter anything that might happen in the future. Um, and so that that's the next thing on my uh, on my to do list, which is again part of a journey that will probably take another one or two years or something like that. Gray shared with us his excitement for the future and the new adventures and opportunities it will bring. I just try and find new things to go and do. So one one of the uh, organisations I'm involved in is called the Entrepreneurs Organisation, and there's about twelve thousand of us uh, worldwide, and you basically need to be the founder of a business. Uh, turning over at least a million dollars and a, a few other criteria. But I, I probably changed about two-thirds of my friends a few years ago to just hang out with a lot of these guys because where a lot of friends before were typical employees and they did their kind of eight to late and then they go home and watch TV and have the meat and two veg at home and then uh, come time with the family. With a lot of these entrepreneurs, there is no rules. And especially when you go overseas, a lot of them, the Asian families are third generation, so they might have billion-dollar companies. But whether you turn over a billion or a, or a million, you're all equal around the table, and this is a big um, philosophy of the organization, and there's no judgment and there's no ego. And so I travel around a lot of Asia and around the rest of the world just seeing these other guys all learning off each other, and we've all got different things to teach each other. And... Um, I just love the learning now. So I spend a lot of time, not so much reading books, but just listening to speakers and, and listening to people that have actually done stuff. And I go to countries that I've never even heard of, like Komodo, where the Komodo dragons are, which is uh, an island in uh, Indonesia. So various places in China I've never even heard of. And so uh, I think we're off to Mexico in um, in March, and then Seoul, and then Fukuoka in, in Japan. So I'm traveling to all these uh, amazing places, meeting lots of amazing people, and I'm just learning new things. And, and that's what I strive for these days is just to meet interesting people, learn things I haven't even thought of, and come up with other ideas of things I can put on my bucket list and uh, go off and enjoy it. Gray and I move on to discussing the importance of mindset and how to overcome mental obstacles. My mindset was pretty closed like uh, most people's. My dad was a heart physician, studied at Cambridge University, so he was very much an academic and um, 
decided that look, we should go to school, ideally go to university, get proper jobs and things like that. Um, and so I was going to be an employee for life. And I just happened to go down a different type of journey. And I guess I was quite rebellious as a kid. And if I was told to do something, I'd always do the opposite, even if I wanted to do it. And so, um, yeah, suddenly kind of 10, 10, 12 years later, then ended up being uh, unemployed or self-unemployed or retired or whatever you want to call it. And then uh, more of an entrepreneur these days. So, what kind of mindset did Gray adopt to be able to implement the property investment strategy that he's currently on? I think the main thing with mindset is more that anything is possible and really there aren't any rules and if people tell you that there are rules, then there's always a different way and ultimately it all comes down to your why. Now, being an accountant or an ex-accountant, I'm very numbers focused and I'm not into these airy-fairy kind of um, kind of seminars where you kind of dream and draw pictures and the rest of it but in hindsight, I know this is one of the most important things. So your biggest thing is, is what are the reasons you're doing this for? Because it's going to be a, a tough road and it's going to be a long journey. It's not going to be overnight. And there's going to be some pretty tough, hard times that will really test you. And this is when your why is strong enough, then that'll get you through things. That If you've got to ring 10 banks or 50 banks or 100 banks, then you'll go through that because failure isn't an option. So um, being not not repaying a loan and becoming a bankrupt or something isn't an option. You've got to repay all your loans. And so you will kind of beg, borrow, steal or have five or 10 jobs to be able to do that. And that's when you need an open mindset to say, well, okay, I keep going down this way. It's not working. What are the other options? How can I go and do it? So rather than accept the no, it's how can I go? Yeah, definitely. And having the resilience to be able to push through and persevere without giving in because a lot of people will end up giving in either they sell the property or they just um, as you said don't pay and lose it through the bank which is not a good thing as well it's definitely having that resilience to push through and changing that mindset to go okay nope I've got to do it I've got to, whatever it takes I've got to be able to push through this whole I guess problem or issue that I've just put myself into and it depends how hard you push yourself because if you just buy one additional property and if it doesn't go right sure you can sell it and hopefully things will be okay with the bank and it's not a big deal but if you've suddenly bought 10 or 20 properties and the market turns or you're in trouble for 5 or 10%, then that can be a lot of money. And it's not a kind of thing that um, you can ever get far from uh, having a job. And so, um, yeah, sometimes you've got to push through. So I remember hearing uh, Aussie John Simon, uh, he said, like, I couldn't get a job at McDonald's to solve my financial problems. I I kind of had to do it big or, or, or nothing or, or effectively fail. So it's, it's really putting in your position where there is no choice that you've got to make it work. The stories that John Simon's had is very, very inspiring as well too because at the end of the day, those people who have succeeded, like yourself, have actually been persistent and that's really, really important. I think that's what listeners need to understand that it's, it's so important to persist through no matter what happens. Uh, you mentioned as well, you took a 15K course on real estate or property investing. Uh, is that one of the resources uh, that you would recommend or do you have any mentors and resource that you could um, yeah, recommend? I've done a multiple uh, courses over the last 10 or 15 years and a lot of them are probably not around these days because quite often the speakers might be around for a few years and they morph into something else or their business changes. Mm. I guess just like my business, so I started off mentoring at I think about 32, 33, I did that for a few years. And then now we just do the buyer's agents uh, business. So again, my courses that uh, that I was doing aren't even around these days. 
So look, my thought is, is I think all the courses are good. Um, and sure, you might some some are free, some are a thousand dollars, some might be five or ten or even fifty thousand dollars, and they're all good and 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 do what you can afford. You can't do them all at the same time, but maybe thinking about doing one course a year and start off with the free ones and move to the paid ones. But a general thought is 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 you get what you pay for. So if you go to a free course, you're probably going to be sold lots of other things. Mm. Um, but there's still lots of great information there. Um, if you're paying a few thousand for a course, then the chances are then you're going to get more value out of that because you paid good money. People are only going to give information up. So, I mean, for someone like me, is I don't go and, and speak for a few hundred dollars. Is if someone really wants my time, it's thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. So, if you really do want those experts, then you've effectively got to got to pay for them. And some people say, well, how do you know who's good and who's bad? And I say, look, even if someone's just got out of prison. I think it's worth learning from them because you can learn how maybe they did the wrong thing or how they ripped someone off or how they bent the rules or whatever else. And obviously, I'm not going to advocate that you, anyone ever does anything illegal or, or stretches the boundaries too much, but it, it's more a case of learn how people, other people got ripped off so you can then go and counteract that so you don't get ripped off. Mm-hmm. So probably one of the biggest things I learned from the first course I did, which I advocate all the time now, is getting an independent bank valuation. So wherever you buy property anywhere in the world, if you go to a completely independent valuer and probably pay them 500 bucks, I'm not talking about getting a $25 online one, I'm talking about getting a full inspection, that valuer has then got an insurance policy that if it was ever proved that the property you bought wasn't worth what you paid for it, effectively you could sue the valuer. And it's not to have a property investing strategy that's based on suing people, but a valuer, if he's putting his kind of balls on the line about things, he's not going to lie over it because he can get sued and their policies are very, very expensive. That's almost a guarantee that you're never going to overpay for a property. But the reality is, is most people will try and save that 500 bucks and they won't go and do it. Yeah, so we, we buy the same types of properties in the same areas all the time. So we know our market very, very well because we've been in it for 10 or 20 years. But every single time we buy, we go and get an independent valuation for 550, a building inspection for 440, and a strider inspection for 250. So we pay 1250 bucks before we even consider putting an offer in. Whereas Joe Public, that hasn't got the knowledge, they they virtually never use any of those um, services. That's an excellent tip to actually for the listeners and I, I highly recommend doing that too because I have done the same thing as well and it does make sure that your property that you are buying is going to be valued at the correct price as well too. Any mentors that you sought help from? Uh, I'm sure that you, as you said, you've been through a lot of training. You've probably got a lot of mentors but do you have one that you currently use? Yeah, not, not so much. Look, I've used lots of mentors over the years and I think you grow out of them at times so there's quite often no mentor for life that you use them for, for different amounts. Um, I mean, I hire the very best professionals I can. So a lot of the professionals that I use might charge a 1000 an hour and they work for some of the top firms. A lot of the entrepreneurs I speak to through the Entrepreneurs Organization, which I mentioned in the previous interview, then a lot of those, it's almost no cost. We're part of a, a club or an organization that's all self-helping and we discuss things together. Um, but look, I mean, people like Anthony Bell uh, from Bell Partners, who is John McGrath's accountant, he's very, he's always been very good to me because he understands the local eastern suburbs and Sydney market that I invest in because uh, he's invested there as well. 
and he spends a lot of time with the agents. And again, um, uh, people like Charles Tarby, Tom Panos, a lot of these people I get on my show now. And so this is this is quite a good thing in that in the old days, so 15 years ago, I'd look up to these people and it, I was very, very grateful they'd even give me five minutes of their time. Whereas now a lot of these people, because I do Sky Business and I can get them on as guests, a lot of the time when I wanted to, to meet people, I'd just say, hey, do you want to come on my show and share your experiences? And I'm kind of, I'm almost not thinking of the viewer. I'm thinking of me. What stuff do I want to learn from these guys? And I, I can ask them any questions I want. And, of course, it's of interest to the viewers as well because, obviously, they, they've got a similar thing that they're trying to achieve at the same time. So suddenly I can almost be like an equal to these guys and, and we've got their mobile numbers and we can talk to them and ring them pretty much any time we want because, um, yeah, I get them on TV, I give them exposure, I can help um, kind of get them out to my clients as well. So it's more of a two-way relationship now rather than paying them uh, specifically for uh, for some of their advice. Yeah, it's absolutely a win-win situation. And by doing that, I think everyone all appreciates it because not only are you helping them leverage and giving them exposure, you're also learning what you or want to ask questions that you don't don't know about and you're able to get them on the show as well to be able to share that with your viewers as well. So it's absolutely win-win. And that's the whole idea with property investing or business is about creating win-win um, solutions that everyone wins and then there's a reason for everyone to be involved in it. Um, I mean, another firm that I spend a lot of time with is, is well, I used to work at Deloitte, some of my clients at Deloitte Private. Now, a lot of people think that the big four accounting firm, that's for global companies and billionaires and stuff like that. But quite often their fees aren't that different to a second tier firm. And where a lot of their clients uh, might be a half billionaire or a billionaire, when they've already spent the money trying to work out structures of how to hold their billion dollars and what entities to put them in, is if they've already worked it out for the billionaire and the billionaire's paid them the big fees, it's very easy for them to translate it to little old me that's only worth 10 or 15 million. Um, and I can access that, that same knowledge bank, but for a fraction of the cost. And so I now don't really worry or I don't necessarily know how much I'm paying for advice because the main thing is, is to get the right advice. Whether I'm paying $100 an hour or 1000 in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't actually matter at all. He shares with us some insights about how the times have moved forward from his parents' generation. Quite often what I say is our parents' generation, they try to get wealthy by saving money. All our parents said, look after the pennies, pennies look after the pounds. But if you only earn 100 grand and you pay tax on that, you're only going to increase your wealth by maybe 60 or 70 grand because that's all you earn. Whereas I think the new generation way of thinking is to say, you've got to spend money to make money. And so the same is with the buyer's agent service that, that we have. So we charge, say, 2%. On a million dollars, we charge 20 grand. But we might buy a property for a million dollars rather than pay 1.1 million or a million and 50 at auction. So in our parents' mind, on my business, they'd say, save the 20,000 because you can do it yourself, which sure people can do. But a clever CEO or high net worth now would say, well, I'd rather buy it for a million dollars and pay you 20 because then I paid a million and 20 rather than do it myself, waste all my time, maybe make a mistake and still pay a million and 50 or 1.1 at auction. So in some people's minds, the negative skeptics, they'll be saying, no, I want to save the money. Whereas in the entrepreneur or the wealth creator's mind, it's no, I've spent money, but that's making me maybe four or five times my money. 
Yeah, and I totally agree on that part. And also too, because you've done all the research as well and have the knowledge and, and networks in between, you can actually get it much more under market value compared to what maybe a retail person or CEO could walk in because they don't have the knowledge or the time to be able to do all that. So there, it is a huge, huge advantage. Exactly. It's, it's the same with shares or business or accounting. There's no point doing that. You can't be a specialist at everything. And so I think you're actually better off being a generalist. It's good to know a little bit. So I know a bit about accounting, a bit about law, a bit of, of uh, finance and stuff. But I then go to the experts. So I know how to talk to these guys, but they're the ones that do it all day, every day. And they're the ones that I actually get the advice from. Gray is a jack of all trades, which has helped him to maximize his potential. His $15 million portfolio didn't grow itself after all. So, what other strategies did he use to achieve this impressive portfolio? My strategy, I, I quite often say, is it's so basic, it's kind of too simple for most clever people. So, most people are trying to outthink it, trying to think there's something special, that there must be some hidden secret that I'm not telling them or, or someone else isn't telling them. But basically, the bottom line is I bought properties and I waited. And I, I guess. The, the main thing I've done is I've always bought blue chip. So right from buying in the, in the UK when I was 22, my thought process was is if I rent these properties to young professionals, they generally got well-paid jobs. They don't want to lose those jobs, so they're always going to pay the rent. Um, if they end up in trouble, they've generally got wealthy parents. And generally in those areas, there is no, I guess quite often there's a limited supply of property, so it's, they're in kind of built-up areas. There's lots of young professionals that can afford to uh, to rent them, and so generally that lack of supply and increasing demand, that basic economics pushes prices up. And obviously now at, say, 45, so I've spent the last 10 or 12 years interviewing people on TV, reading kind of hundreds of books, speaking to thousands and thousands of people, and sure, I know a hell of a lot now compared to what I knew 20, 23 years ago. But the main thing of my portfolio is still the same. So so these days, I, I don't buy in the CBD because I think there's no limit of supply. You can keep building all these American towers. So I'm typically going 5 to 15 Ks from the main capital city, i.e. Sydney. So I'm in the eastern beaches, the low north shore, the inner west. And that's all the areas where there's three-story height limits, you can't physically build any more properties. Lots of young professionals can afford to live there. And so I think prices continue to rise. And I don't try and time the market. I think even when the market slows, it generally slows down rather than goes down. So property is always more expensive tomorrow in these kind of medium price areas. And, and that's the other thing. I'm buying medium price. So within 20% of the medium price, so roughly 9 to 1.2 for a two-bedroom unit in those areas. And I just keep accumulating. I pull the equity out. As soon as I've got enough for another deposit, then I buy another one and I just wait. And it's it's pretty much as simple as that. So for people who are just starting out, how can they actually get into a market like that and start accumulating, thinking of the long term? Look, it, it is pretty tough. and But it was tough 20 or 30 years ago when I started as well. And so you've got to do different things. And so it's maybe getting four or five jobs to build your deposit. It's maybe doing it with a brother or sister to um, share your serviceability. It's maybe working with a parent on a guarantee or to use some of their equity that um, quite often they've got. 
basically the bottom line is if there's a will, there's a way. There's always a way of getting in there. If you can't afford a 500 grand or a million dollar property, buy a 100 grand one. Buy something way out west or in a different state. Do your research and get the best property location you can and use that equity to then build up. So I think the one of the issues with, I guess, the youth of today, if I can sound old and, and, and sound like one of my parents or something like that, is people expect to be able to buy a two-bedroom in Bondi when they're 20 years old. Now, Bondi is the best or the most expensive suburb. You can't expect that when you're 20 years old. Um, and so it's something that you've just got to build on. So even if you're not into property, buy some shares. Um, now we're looking at a new product next year, which is called fractional ownership. So even if you had 50 grand, say, or some savings towards 50 grand, is this new product now where you might buy, be able to buy a 20th of a Bondi property and at least it gets you in the market. So I think there really is no excuse these days. You, you've just got to want it enough and do whatever it takes to, to get in there. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you mentioned about the fractional um, ownership there. I've heard a little bit about that story. For listeners who, who don't really know much about it, it's when there is, I think it's a trust from what I, I read about it in the paper, saying that um, the company will buy these properties and then split ownership of it to people who actually want to buy parts of it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that is that something along yeah. that lines? Yeah. yeah. And, and so look, it, it's a fairly new thing these days. It's... Um, and the philosophy comes from, say, if you had a million dollars, you wouldn't necessarily buy a million dollars of one share. So why buy a million dollars of one property? Is Obviously, you, you buy a little bit. And there's different pros and cons and stuff like that, so it's not quite quite such an easy thing. But in essence, yeah, they might split it into 10,000 shares of, of that million-dollar property. And so effectively, you can then, with your $5,000 or $10,000, is then buy a part of that. But rather than own, say, say if you had 100 grand, rather than buy 100 grand uh, property and own it yourself that's in the middle of woodwork that you've got no idea if it will ever grow in value, you might prefer to get 10% of a Bondi property. And sure, you might not get as much leverage. You might not have any control over it. Sure, there might be a few more costs of getting in. But is it better to have 10% of a blue chip property than 100% of one that's absolutely rubbish in the middle of nowhere? And some people will make a lot of money from buying those 100 grand ones. And there's other people that will say, no, I'd just rather a percentage of a blue chip one. So there's just more and more options these days. And you need to work out and find someone that can truthfully tell you the real pros and cons of that strategy to work out if it's the right strategy for you. Yeah, that's right. And also, it's got to fit within what you want to do as well. So it comes back down to the why, as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview as well. Yeah, and, and so the main thing, and I guess it's almost a, a disclaimer with these kind of interviews, is there is no one right strategy. So just because I do something, it doesn't make it right for all the other people in the audience. It might suit 50% or 90% or 10%. It depends on who you are. So it's very much a case of look at the strategies, work out the pros and the cons of them, then go to some decent advisors that you're actually paying for advice, because if you're not paying for them, Effectively, they're biased and they're going to sell you something that they get a commission on. And so you've got to need to go to independent financial advisors or accountants or uh, or mortgage brokers to then work out, is it the right thing for you? And if it is, then go ahead and, and make a move and do something. He shares with us the habits he practices which help to boost his success. I guess the, the biggest thing is I'm constantly pushing to learn and constantly pushing to invest. 
And so I spend a lot of money in networking and socialising and going to meetings and learning uh, at seminars and things like that. So just always be looking for whatever the next thing is or to make sure that I guess there's nothing that I'm missing. So it's it's even for me, and I, I think I'm a reasonable expert in what I do, but I still don't get too complacent to, to think that maybe there's something I'm missing. And so one of the things I've done is I advertise or I've shared what my wealth is, how much assets I've got, how much money I make, even my P&Ls almost, in the media and across lots of friends and advisors. And it's not to go and boast to say that this is how much money I've got, but I wanted people to question what I was doing and why I was doing it. And initially, a lot of financial advisors would say, oh, I wouldn't be investing in property, it's not liquid, and all these complaints and the rest of it. And I've learned all the counter arguments to all of those different things. And so I'm probably 99% confident of what I'm doing now because I've pretty much put it out there and heard all the counter arguments that I could possibly get. Whereas I think a typical person, they don't tell anyone what they earn for a living. They don't tell them what they've got in their bank and, and what their strategy is. And so I think it's very hard to become an expert at something if you don't talk about it. And say if you take it to sports, if you want to get better at sports, people have coaches and they share and they go to the gym and they have personal trainers because if someone else has done something, they can then hopefully put them on a better path. But that's the whole thing with wealth is if you don't talk about money, you don't share it, there's no way you're going to get very clever at it because you're only going to learn at the, your own learning pace rather than someone that's... Um, maybe 20 years ahead of you. Yeah, and that's very important. It's uh, it's very interesting that we apply and have coaches for sports, but a lot of us don't have coaches for wealth creation or property investing because it is pretty much a journey. You know, if you want to improve on anything, you've got to really find and seek mentoring or help from others and seek the right professionals to help you grow your wealth base as well. So I think that that's a really good point that you've put out there as well. And it's great that you do share all that, all your all your wealth and your um, yeah your assets base and, and put that out in the media so that people can learn from you. Not necessarily to boast, as you said, but to actually learn and and be inspired to to go on a journey. And if the strategy that you're teaching every one of us is um, something that people resonate with, then definitely go ahead and, and apply that strategy as well. I guess uh, to to wrap up this this podcast as well. Is there a, a, a book that you would recommend or or currently listen to, to to share with the listeners? Oh, look, obviously the best book in the world is uh, The Effortless Empire, which I wrote uh, back in 2004. Um, but no, look, I, I think there's a lot of really good books out there and I would almost just go and buy them all. Or if you haven't got the money, go to the library. Books are the cheapest things. They're like 20 or $30 or something like that. And they really do give you a lot of information. Now, I mean, one of the ones, I guess one of the things is some people are obviously trying to make money from the books, and so they might have a series of 10 books, and they drip feed you stuff all the way through, um, because then they want you to get the next book and the next book and the next book. I mean, one thing I did with my book is, so I think I've sold something like 60 or 70,000 copies, but never really actually sold one. We just give them all away, because what I thought for my book is, I want to tell everyone there is to know about property all in one book because effectively, otherwise I'm going to get lots of people coming to me wanting two or three hours of my time and I can't afford all of that time to go and give to people. So if I give them the book for completely free and tell them everything there is to need to know, 
the ones that are never going to buy my services or want to invest somewhere else or don't believe in the buyer's agents model, they'll take the book, they'll get all the information, and they can go off somewhere else. Whereas the ones that do believe in it, then they'll say, hi, Chris, that's great. I've got three or four questions, and then we're good to go. So I've actually put all the information in my book of everything I think I know, and it's obviously in a bit of a summarized form, because I wasn't trying to sell a series of 10 books. And so I think, and obviously I've got a bias to, um, to, to read my book, but I think it's a great book to give you the overall summary of positive cash flow versus negative gear and all the rest of it. And then if you decide you want to follow a different speciality, like you want to buy, renovate, and flip, go and then get the 10 books on buy, renovate, and flip, or positive cash flow properties, or negative gear, or off the plan. So I think there's so much stuff out there that, again, there really is no excuse for people not to go there. And I think the libraries have legally got to have a copy of every single book that's around. So even if you've got no money, as long as you can afford a library ticket, then, um, then that's all the information that you need. Thank you to Chris Gray, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey and get a copy of the episode guide on the website, head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash guide. This guide will give you the inside scoop on the little gold nuggets of wisdom all our guests share from the backstory and all their overall strategies and philosophies. Plus, you'll get a copy of the advice broken down and shared in a quick and easy to consume format. Just head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash guide and download it today.